Amen. Can we thank God for what he's already done this morning? <laughs> Amen. And Anna, thank you for the words you spoke over the interns. And I just want to echo and encourage the church. I believe that these four people have so much to offer us, uh, but I also believe so much in the mission, the vision, and the purpose of this church. And we have a lot to offer to young people who've been called into different forms of ministry. So I also want to encourage you to reach out and get to know them. Uh, we have so much to give them. Uh, I'm excited about this series today that I'm in, uh, launched it last week called Christ in Culture. Before we get to that, something happened this week that was just too good not to share. I was at lunch with one of the elders and uh, we had fortune cookies come our way. And there's a fortune cookie that Joe Ward received. And, and here's what it says. Your musical talents will soon be showcased. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But Joe Ward, wherever you are, we are praying that God will bring that to fruition. Kip, take note, all right? Joe, Joe in fact, he's going to be up here later on in the service. However, we want to help cultivate that gift in him. Hey, I also want to acknowledge, I'm not going to be here next Sunday, and I want to acknowledge that uh, in the month of May, it is a Love Like Trisha campaign that we have celebrated now uh, for four or five years. It was five years ago this month that we lost Trisha Lillard, a dear friend of this church, a, a, a longtime member, a woman who has modeled the way of Christ for so many of us. Uh, a woman who had a child in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 21st century, four different decades. She has a kid in her family. Uh, took in close to 40 foster children throughout her life. For many of us, Trisha was a pastor and she was also a prophet. And I just celebrate her life. And if you want to just Google or jump on Agape's website to see more about the Love Like Trisha campaign, her legacy and her heart and her life lives on. Um, I love the church. Today's Pentecost, and I know a lot of us grew up in um, churches where we didn't celebrate the Christian calendar, but today there are people all over the world who are celebrating the day of Pentecost, 50 days uh, after Easter. And, but we are a part of a church that takes seriously the book of Acts, especially Acts chapter 2, where there is the day of Pentecost, where the church was birthed, the church was launched, the church was given a clear mission, the Holy Spirit filled the church, touched down in people's lives, gave them a clear focus on what they were supposed to be about. And uh, I, I love the church, I care for the church. Every time I stand up here on a Sunday, I want to present to you, I want to give you something from God so that you can be challenged. If you are convicted in some kind of way, I, I I pray that God does that through me to you to draw you close to Jesus. Every Sunday, the last prayer I pray before I step up on this stage is that God will use me to equip the church and to unleash the church to be what God has called us to be. Uh, so I take seriously even this day of Pentecost and what I get to preach on today. Now, I want to uh, get to a few places in Scripture. There's a few things I want to do today to help lay a foundation for why we are in this series called Christ and Culture. Because I, I don't want to act like there are some series that I preach on that don't matter. I just feel like this is so pivotal for the church of the 21st century. Is that we understand and we take note of what it means to be Christians in the culture that we currently live in. And there are some major challenges challenges that we face. Some of them are similar challenges to the first century church. Some of them are specific challenges to us that may not have been such big challenges for them. So I want to walk us through these today. Last week, what I did in the first uh, series, first message in this series is I talked to you about the way we use lenses 
And there's always a primary lens and a secondary lens in life. And a lot of times what happens is we can put a primary lens on when it comes to reading the Bible to thinking about faith. And we can have a primary lens that does not honor the lens God wants us to have on instead of allowing the Bible, the truth of God, the love of God to be the primary lens that we engage all of life. So I want to begin this morning with three similar challenges that we face that the early church faced too. And then I want to talk about specific challenges before I get to a few passages I want to lay in front of you today. One of the similar challenges we face that the church has faced for 2,000 years is a challenge of allegiance. And this was so clear to me. I've been, I've been praying through this for months. Last June, when my wife and I went to Rome and we're walking the streets of Rome, this became abundantly clear. Because I love the book of Romans. I read a lot of Romans in the New Testament while I was in Rome. And as I walked the streets of Rome, even though it's 2,000 years removed from the early church, I could see how allegiance was challenged every single day. Because anywhere you went, even today, there are statues of emperors. Emperors claiming to be God. to uh, Emperors asking for people to worship them as God. So when the church was launched and the church was moving in and throughout the Roman Empire and the city of Rome, it is something they face every single day. When it comes to allegiance, this is something we struggle with every day. Because the Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and, and just fill in the blank. You can't serve God in money. You cannot serve God in wealth. You cannot serve God in the emperor or the king or whoever it is running your nation. You can't serve God and a nation. You cannot serve God in anything else. So God cannot just become a priority in your life where you have your social life, your work life, your uh, family life, and then you have your priority time or you're with God every day. God cannot be a priority. God is the one who is over all of your priorities everything. God reigns over it all. So allegiance is constantly on the line. Early Christians knew this, that when they said with their lips, I confess Jesus is the Lord of my life, they were also saying, and nothing else is. Caesar's not, the king is not, the emperor is not. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, like, I think the enemy, I think Satan wants us to believe God is our only allegiance. He has our ultimate allegiance. But I think we would get to a healthier place with God and a healthier place in the church if we would sit back and ask, God, what are the unhealthy allegiances that are currently present in my life and how can I repent of those, turn from those so that I can give Jesus my ultimate allegiance. The second thing is navigation. In the first century world, the early Christians, they struggle with navigation. This is a challenge for us. This can be a challenge for all of humanity until Jesus comes back. And the, and the question is, how do we navigate life? How do we navigate kingdom life while we live on Roman streets or Memphis streets or wherever it may be? This is a big issue for them. Because for the church, the question, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The question was never if we enter into culture to make a difference. The question was how do we enter into culture to make a difference? It was never an if we go, it's how do we go? And for them, I, their lives were on the line, you know, to be bold and courageous for Jesus. And for us, I don't know exactly what that looks like in our culture. But the question was never if you go, it's how do you go? What do you wear as you go? The answer is the armor of God. We are pressing forward. Now, here's the thing. I know people who have tried to read the websites of all the places that they need to boycott and protest from because that their values don't line up with them. And I know people who it is so exhausting to try to do that. Because what I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks is at what point, like, do we understand Christ in culture? Or is it Christ against culture? Or is it Christ assimilating with culture? 
Because I don't think the early Christians were taught by Jesus or the apostles or that they understood the teachings of God to be something that kept them from culture. It wasn't a stiff arm over getting away and it also wasn't a, hey, wherever culture goes, we just go along with it. So what is it? So what does it mean to navigate this life to where it's not just an if, it's a how? How are we going to do this? We're asking God every day for wisdom and courage to know how to do it. Thirdly, it's a new community. So for me, I've been praying for months on this, on allegiance, navigation, new community, allegiance, navigation, new community. Because in the early church, one of the biggest challenges they faced were Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, people from all different tribes, nations, languages coming together because Jesus launched a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic church. Where it wasn't the Jews over here, Gentiles over here, rich over there, poor over here. It's everyone coming together. This is Acts 2, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 15. The entire book of Romans, the majority of the New Testament, is trying to teach people that it's this blending. God is bringing people together to live out this life. This is still a challenge for us today, right? And one of the big challenges for us is that I know a lot of people who are passionate about reconciliation... But what they do is, I'm passionate about reconciliation, but it would be great if whoever the other is, so if I'm a white person, whoever the black person is, or the Latino is, or someone outside of my economic bracket, it would be great if they would be reconciled to my narrative or my culture. Does this make sense? This makes reconciliation much more easier if whoever the other is would be reconciled to whatever my narrative is. The challenge in first century culture is the challenge for us too. And Dr. King was right that the most segregated hour is still Sunday morning in churches. And this isn't just true for color of skin, it's also true for uh, anything that, that divides Christians, whether it's rich and poor, suburban, urban, it's Sunday morning's the most segregated hour because to be reconciled as a different group of people takes a lot of humility, takes a lot of surrendering, and it takes time to listen to other people's narratives because we're not just reconciling other people. With them comes a culture, a narrative, past experiences we don't just have to acknowledge. We have to, to get to know better. Allegiance, navigation, new community. Three of the biggest challenges for them. Three of the biggest challenges for us too. But here are three specific challenges for us today that I'm not sure the early church struggled with as much. Because 2,000 years, a lot changes. So let me go through these. The first is this, is that it becomes really easy in the church today for us to want to protect the establishment and not to be a part of restoring the world. Churches of Christ are a part of the restoration movement. This has gone on for a couple of hundred years. Uh, but there have been times that we have been much more like a preservation movement than a restoration movement that we have just tried to preserve what was instead of restoring what God wants to be. There have been times where we have been mixed up on what we are trying to restore. That there have been times that for decades there have been churches that their focus was on restoring formulas of worship services and patterns of how the worship service needs to go, something the New Testament talks very little about. And it's not about restoring worship patterns and Sunday morning worship services and their Sunday morning practices. It's about God using the church and launching the church to be about restoring the entire world to himself. The church is not about protecting the establishment. It's about being a part of how God is reconciling the world. Secondly is individualism. 
This is something we struggle with that I don't think early church did because they weren't in an individualistic society. Now, this isn't always bad. Uh, but we do live in a time now where we teach people at a very young age to be yourself, develop yourself, uh, which isn't always a bad thing. But here's what happens. Today, there are Bibles that you can go buy at a bookstore that are personalized Bibles that have taken 7,000 verses and have left them with an underline. So you go read your Bible and you insert your name into that verse where it can become your own personalized Bible. 7,000 verses that now gives you the chance to insert your name. So instead of it saying, for God so loved the world, it says, for God so loved Josh or Jim or Dan or Sherry, whoever it may be. 7,000 times. Now, what happens is stuff like this. Some of our favorite verses, and I'm not gonna try to change some of your minds. Jeremiah 29, 11 has been one of my favorite verses for years. It's one of the first verses I, I was taught to memorize. And Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. I love the verse, and I don't wanna talk you out of like, not loving it when you leave today. But here's the deal. Jeremiah 29, 11 wasn't written for college graduates. Jeremiah 29, 11 wasn't written for 24-year-olds who aren't sure what career path they want to take. Or for 28-year-olds who are single, but they want to be married, but they're in a dating slump, all right? Jeremiah 29, 11 wasn't just written for individuals. If you see the broader context of Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. God is talking to people who are in, they're in exile. They're, they're in bondage. And for, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The context of Jeremiah 29, 11, and there are principles of this for graduates and for for, for all people, but the context is that God wants to set people free and liberate people. Jeremiah 29, 11 functions a lot better within a celebrate recovery where people are learning, learning freedom than to be a verse that we stick on graduation postcards. But what happens when we live in an individualistic society is we begin to think even faith is just for me. So it's my walk with God, my personal relationship with God. I'm going to take care of mine. You take care of yours. And we can be together in heaven one day. This is a very specific problem for us. Because in the early church, they understood that in their society, there was so much that was needed to depend on others to survive in life. And the church understood this too. Thirdly, and I want to be very careful with this one, and I'm going to encourage you to listen carefully with this one. Because there could be something I say in the next couple of minutes that will cause you to lose other things I'm about to say. One of our problems, a specific problem for us, is nationalism versus patriotism. And there is a difference. I'm patriotic, and I think most of us, almost all of us in this room are. I sing the national anthem. And sometimes I'm moved when I do sing it or when I'm listening to whoever it is singing it. I'm grateful for those who have served in our country. I think there are so many amazing things about America, a land of opportunity. It has offered forms of freedom to to so many people. Uh, uh, We have been a great country. I'm patriotic in so many ways, but I'm not nationalistic. And here's what I mean. I do not think that the United States of America is eternal. I don't think America is going to live on throughout 
all of the ages, and I'm not talking about this side of eternity. I'm not sitting here trying to be a prophet of the collapse of America. I'm saying that when Jesus comes back and restores all things, there's not going to be an American flag that is sitting on the throne of God or that's being waved in heaven. And I, I don't think we're going to sing the Star Spangled Banner in heaven one day. Songs are going to be fully directed to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So America isn't eternal. And the other thing is this. I do not subscribe to the teaching or the belief that God prefers America over other nations or that God prefers Americans over Indians or Asians or people who live in Antarctica, if there are any people down there, all right? That God is a God. He's a global God. He's for the world. If you were to ask me, is America good? I would say absolutely. There's so many good things about America. If you were to ask me, do I believe America has been good to the world? I would say absolutely. America's done some great things for the world. Whether you're a pacifist or not, acknowledging the role America has played in taking down some, some evil regimes throughout the world, America's often, if not always, on the front lines of, of most forms of aid that's been provided when tragedies hit places in the world. There's so much good but if you were to ask me, has America always been good? The answer is no. I mean, there are some embarrassing things about our country's history. Some things we're embarrassed by, and some things probably 30 years from now we'll look back on that are happening today that we will still be embarrassed by. We haven't been perfect. And there's sometimes I sit with certain groups of people who struggle when they hear others say phrases like, I wish we could just go back to when America was a Christian nation. Because there are some groups of people that don't know what decade or what era you may be talking about that wasn't good for them. I've never heard an African American say, I wish we could go back to the days when America was a Christian nation. <clears throat> and there are some groups of people I sit with because I love dialogue with conservatives and liberals, with Christians and Protestants. And if I get the chance to sit with Jews and Muslims, I want to learn from people so I know how I can represent Jesus in front of, of all people. There are times where I've sat with people who aren't Democrats, but who ask questions about the phrase that they see posted on social media sometimes about make America great again, because for them, they're asking, what are we referring to? What era are we referring to? Can you at least acknowledge how this can be a challenge for some people? So, so here's, here's my concern when it comes to Christianity in America today. And I, and, and I feel led by God just to try to speak this into someone's heart because I know there are people in this room who need to hear it. One of my concerns is this, is that there are a lot of Christians in America today who by the way they live life, maybe it doesn't come out of their mouth, but the practice they have in life is that they care more about America than they do about the kingdom of God. And, and then we wonder why evangelism seems to suffer in so many of our churches. And this is because many of us have begun to relate that America is the kingdom of God or America is the new Israel. How many times have you been at like a, a prayer breakfast or you've heard of, of a, a prayer breakfast over our nation or a national day of prayer where we hear verses like in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray uh, and turn from their wicked ways that I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal, heal their land. And what we do is we take verses like that and we place them on our country. Not that they don't relate, the principles don't relate in some way, but these aren't for America. 
we follow one who died and rose from the dead and launched a global movement, not a national movement. And one of the greatest challenges for us today is to learn to be patriotic, to love our country and to love who we are, but to believe more in the kingdom of God than in what is good for America. The driving force of a Jesus follower, of a Christian, of a person who surrendered life to God, the driving question every day, can not be what is best for America? The driving question has to be, what is best for the kingdom of God? And the question of what is best for America comes after the question of what is best for the kingdom of God. This is why I think it is difficult today to be a Christian and to be a politician. Not impossible, difficult. Because what happens when those two things are at odds? What's best for the kingdom of God isn't always what's best for America. What's best for America isn't always what's best for the kingdom of God. And it's good for us as we sit in a place where we've witnessed the baptism today, where in a few moments we're going to take communion, we're going to take the bread and offering, is to know this, the church was never called by God to start a nation, launch a nation, or govern a nation. The church was called to be light and salt and to permeate a world full of darkness. A world full of darkness. So, so here's the question that was true for first century and it's true for us today. Or a comment, a statement. All right, write this down if you're taking notes. Disengagement was never an option for the early church. And it's not for us either. So the question becomes, so, so like what now? How do we do this? If disengagement from the world and from culture wasn't an option, what is? So what does it mean to be people who are fully immersed in holiness and righteousness? Who know that our mission is to go into the world so that people can know about Jesus. Let me take you to three places in Scripture. I just want to read these. I want to point out a couple of things. And this is all in the context of trying to push us, encourage us, unleash us to take seriously what it means to be Christ in culture. The first place is Matthew chapter 13. This is in the middle of about seven parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus told him another parable, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the, wheat, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you sow good seed in your field, where then did the weeds come from? And an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. Two things I want you to think about when it comes to this. What does it mean to be a faithful servant? I think this is a parable Jesus tells about faithfulness. That you were called to be faithful. Know your job, know your task, know your lane, and stay out of the lane that God has designated for himself. It is not the church's job to separate the wheat from the weeds. God says, I will take care of that in the end. As for you, you grow together. This doesn't mean you assimilate. He's telling a parable here that we grow with the world, understanding the world, understanding culture, being fully committed to God, understanding what it means to be faithful. We let God do what God has said he will do. Go to Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In Acts chapter 17, um, they, they've had a little problem with Paul because anywhere Paul goes, riots break out. 
And this happened through uh, Acts 13, 14, the beginning of 17, a couple of different places. So they send Paul to Athens. Almost like they're saying, hey man, go to Athens and chill out for a while. And we're going to go and we're going to regroup and we're going to come and we're going to join you there. And here's how it goes down. While Paul was waiting for them. So notice a few things in this. Waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he's waiting for his friends. He's waiting for the church to come. He's also greatly distressed to see all the idols. It's like he's sitting on his hands. And he's just so anxious because now he knows he has to say something and do something. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, and I want you to hang on just for a moment. Uh, when Casey and I were in Rome, we ended up being in Athens for one day and we stood in this place. Right up there in Mars Hill, the Areopagus, they looked over the entire city of Athens. It was gorgeous, Always, it's also surreal. I pulled up on my phone, Acts 17, I was reading it in that place. And to see the marketplace and where all these, where the philosophers would have been and somehow Paul has worked his way into this crowd a couple of things, a couple of principles to take from this. One is this, there's commitment and there was consistency on the part of Paul where he kept showing up in the synagogue and in the marketplace consistently. When it comes to us wanting to be light and salt in the world, this is more than dropping off a turkey once a year for people. It's the church learning to be committed and to be consistent with where it is we are showing up. He's commitment, he's consistent, and Paul also knows there's a clear message that has been given to him to speak. And now he's forming these relationships with people, waiting for that entry point, waiting for that time when he feels the Spirit of God give him permission to, to speak what it is he needs to speak. And when that moment came, here's the sermon he preaches in front of the area, right there in Mars Hill. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, and I love this, he starts quoting their own people. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. But check this out. Some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. And among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. In Acts 17, and there's so much some of you may unpack later on in life groups or at lunches or with your family. There's commitment, there's consistency, there's a clear message, and then there's this. This is so important for us as we go about everyday life. There is character, integrity, and consistency. When those three things are honored, character before God, integrity before God, righteousness before God, and consistency in the world, it leads to gospel platforms. There may have been another phrase or word I could use instead of gospel platforms. It leads to moments when we get to talk to people about Jesus. Paul kept showing up. I love the story Bob Goff tells. Some of you may be big fans of Bob Goff, best-selling author. Maybe you've heard him speak before. He is a crazy dude. He is like a walking Red Bull mixed with a five-hour energy, all right? Um, and, and Bob Goff when he wrote his first best-selling book, in the very back of the book, he put in there, he gave, he gave people his cell phone number. He said, call me at any time and I will answer the phone. If you have ever heard Bob Goff speak at an event, people will call his cell phone and he will answer it while he is speaking. And he'll tell people that, hey, just call me back later, but he's, he always answers his cell phone. It's crazy. And he said, there's this one guy who has called for years. And when this guy calls, the moment Bob Goff says hello, this guy just begins cursing. And just using all kind of foul language. And just goes off on Bob Goff. And maybe some prank. I don't know what it is, all right? This guy just calls and just lays into him. And Bob said he ends every phone call with that guy. That if you ever call me back, I will still pick up the phone. Because he's waiting on the day when that guy will call and he will need someone to talk to. And Bob's going to be ready to extend some love and grace. Character, integrity, consistency that the church is called to show up and to keep showing up. Open your Bibles to John 17. It's a chapter of prayer. Jesus takes time in John 17, right before he dies, where he prays for his apostles. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for us. Here's what he prays for his disciples in John 17, 15 through 18. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, but sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Principles to take from this. There are three of them. Jesus' prayers for protection. And this wasn't a way to play defense. It was a way to play offense. Jesus wasn't saying protect them, like just hold them up in the church and have them protect themselves from anything in the world that you protect them from the evil one while they, are, while they have been sent into the world. Jesus sanctifies them. He cares about truth and about purity. And the third thing Jesus prays is that they will know that they have been sent into the world. There's protection from the evil one. There's sanctification. And there's a message of being sent into the world. And I think this is still the prayer Jesus prays for us. So I want you to consider this while we leave today. That the mission of the church... It's not to pray and to reflect and to think that we've got to get people into Jesus. We've got to get people into a place where they hear about Jesus. The mission of the church is just as much, if not more so, of the people of Jesus getting into the world to be God's people in the world. 
It's not just getting people into a place to hear about Jesus. It's getting the people of God to take seriously their mission as we leave this place and we live in this world and we have to beg God every single day for the wisdom and courage to know how to do this. So what does this mean for you? I don't know if you need to set aside a time of prayer for repentance. I don't know if today or soon you need to set aside a time of prayer for deep reflection on allegiance and how we navigate and the new community God has formed, and how God is calling his church to be his people, because there's no greater thing than the creator of the world to save his church and then to unleash his church to be a part of how God is restoring the world. So we have four prayer tables if there's anything you would like to write and leave for us today. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go throughout the room to receive people for prayer. If there's anything we as a church can do for you, if there's someone in this room who's been inspired by the greatness of Jesus today and you would like to be baptized into Christ, feel free to come up front. We'll have elders to receive you. Let's stand together as a church and let's sing a song.